We are in 1 Corinthians 9, 6 through 14. Paul subordinates apostolic rights, part two. In this case, working to support himself. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7. I'm going to pray and then we'll go into that text. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness, your goodness, your mercy, your love, that you've taken care of us and brought a plan of salvation for us unworthy sinners and given us hope through your gospel. And we pray that we could learn how to live graciously in this fallen world and how we can care for one another. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So continuing from last week's theme, where Paul subordinated legitimate rights that he had for the sake of the gospel, and we saw in application from Philippians 2, example how Christ laid down certain rights, but not his divinity, and how he did so for the benefit of the heirs of salvation. So 1 Corinthians 9, now 6 through 7, from the New American Standard Bible, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Question. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard, does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? So again, as I pointed out last week, there's a lot of rhetorical questions. I believe chapter 9 has about 15 of them. And I'll, in each case, explain the, the logical implications of the questions, whether they're literal or not, and how this works, and then make the applications. I have on my slide here the main point, laborers are typically sustained by their labor. That is the way God's ordained. Laborers are sustained by their labor. So let's look at each one of these questions. The first one is, or, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? There's somewhat of a double negative going on there. Um, and so... I'll uh, try to unpack that. So verse 6 here is an ironic rhetorical question. The required treatment of ministers of the gospel should be based on the same criteria, that is, of the other three that are mentioned here. So here, not have a right to refrain from working, uh, the implicit answer is... um, well, of course, it isn't like that. Others actually are sustained by their ministry. We don't have a record in Acts of how that happened with Barnabas, but it doesn't mean it didn't. We know it did because Paul mentions it here. We know that Paul uh, worked with his hands. He was a tent maker, and we see the narrative of Quilla and Priscilla and others he worked with. He took care of his own needs. And there's a reason for it in the case of Corinth because the super apostles and the elitists were looking for every possible way to discredit Paul because they were on this mission to prove who is the greatest. 
And as I've said many times in sermons recently, that is a fool's question. Because we can't answer who's the greatest. And when the disciples asked it in Luke, Jesus rebuked them. And we know from 1 Corinthians uh, 4 and verse 5, only God can determine the rewards of his workers as far as their spiritual benefit because he knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's not our business to decide who's the greatest and to uh, behave that way, but to rejoice with the Lord as anyone is serving him. We need to appreciate every brother or sister serving the Lord and appreciate one another and care for one another when anybody, whether anybody notices it or not. So um, the, the, the whole situation is kind of a logical absurdity. And so Paul points it out with that first question. Um, and then the implicit answers to the last three are no one, no one, no one. That's his implicit answer. No one, no one, no one. When you plant your garden with vegetables, you do so assuming that there'll be a crop if you don't have a severe drought and that you'll be able to eat from your garden. And so it is with the other examples, the soldier that is supported by whatever country the soldier is serving and the vineyard will bring fruit for the one who owns it and cares for it. So this analogy shows that working is the norm and that people will receive a benefit from their labor. Now, in the case of Barnabas and Paul, I have kind of a recreation of that in my notes here. The negatives end up saying lack the right to stop working for a living doing ministry to unpack the double negative, and uniquely so. The logic points out the absurdity of the situation. Paul had a reason for working with his hands, and that reason was a gospel reason, not that he should not be supported by the Corinthian church where he ministered for a year and a half. Dr. Fee says that in this case, Paul and Barnabas in particular apparently were known to have worked at a trade when they evangelized. This even though the three questions all relate to the same issue, that of his right to their material support, each picks up a different aspect of the concern. Paul has, says Fee, the right, one, to have the Corinthians supply his daily needs, two, to have a wife who would also accompany him in his ministry, talked about that last week, and three, not to have to work at a trade in order to make ends meet. He didn't have a wife, and he did work at a trade, and there were some serious questions about him at Corinth. We're going to unpack that some more. I think there are some things that have come to light that will help us understand why it's like this here at Corinth and what the dangers would be in our day. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 9, 8, and 9. Here is an analogy that most of you have heard about, the ox turning out to grain. So let's read it. 1 Corinthians 9, 8, and 9 from the New American Standard Bible. 
I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Okay, so I'm going to explain some things. There's a lot, you may realize this. There's a lot of discussion and debate about what Paul says here. And uh, you wouldn't believe how many pages in the commentaries cover this. We live in uh, a world that has concerns about things that they probably hadn't thought of back then. So let's see what we can unpack. God is not concerned about oxen. Well, as a matter of fact, the word uh, is ambiguous, and I don't know if that translation is the one that gives justice to it, but I'll unpack that. But I do say this, and this is where I'm going with it, the bottom of the slide. The inclusion of the ox shows mercy for all. And I'll give you some citations about that. In the context of Deuteronomy 24 and 25, there are many prescriptions that guarded the well-being and safety of various people who may be vulnerable. These prescriptions are about human beings who may be vulnerable for whatever reason and could be harmed for whatever reason, and they need to be guarded and protected. And I'll talk a little bit about that without, I can't go back and unpack all of those things in Deuteronomy 24 and 25, because then this would have to be the last slide, and I'd fill up the whole hour with it. But we want to get to the point at hand. Now, he says, I am not speaking these things according to human judgment. Now, um, I have a statement about this in my notes. The intent is that not according to man. Literally in the Greek, it says not according to man. Not according. Kata anthropos, according to man, not according to man. Sets up the law says. So there's two things, what's according to man and what the law says. If you were in Sunday school, Eric talked about that. We believe in what God says in Scripture, not just what humans typically may think. So may kata anthropos, not according to man. And the law says, caution another rhetorical question. Here's the conclusion. The word of God is not human judgment, but God has spoken. Paul goes to a logical implication of Scripture taken in context. It is written. Notice where it says, it is written. And gegroptai, uh, <clears throat> perfect passive indicative. Let me talk about that. Logo software gives you a lot of ability to search. And so it takes a long time for me to prepare sermons because I have to know. So I searched that word, that single word, gegroptai, it is written. And I found that it is used, I believe, 67 times in this exact form in the New Testament. It's one word in the, one word in the Greek, gegroptai, which is... Perfect. In this exact form, perfect passive indicative, 67 times. So I printed out all 67. 
the Greek, the English, side by side, and analyze each one of them. And it refers to the Old Testament scripture with four possible exceptions. The first exception, in fact, refers to the Gospel of John. Let me read that to you. Here's one time it's used referring immediately to the Gospel. John 20, 31. But these things have been written, there's our word, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What a beautiful scripture. The New Testament is God having spoken as well as the Old. But the Old Testament is a scripture the apostles had, and when they cited it, they said, it is written. And it is written means God has spoken. And what God has spoken is inerrant, it's authoritative, it's applicable, and we have something to learn. And Eric had a great sermon recently where he laid out how the New Testament uses the old. So out of the 67, one of the exceptions is about New Testament scripture. These are written that you may believe, believe in the gospel. Now, what are the other three? Well, one we covered, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. I alluded to 4, 5 earlier about not passing judgment before the time, but here it says, learn not to go beyond what is written. And so out of all of these times, what is written referred to Scripture. So Paul is saying, learn not to go beyond Scripture. Scripture alone is one of the solas we affirm. Now, there's two more. What are the other two? They're both about the book of life. And uh, Revelation 13.8 and 17.8 refer to names not written in the book of life. Those who are deceived by Antichrist, whoever's names are not written in the book of life. So those are the only two exceptions. And it has to do with, with something that happens at final judgment. Therefore... Why does the New Testament say it is written using that same word all those times? Because God's word is true, it's authoritative, and it tells us the way of life and the way of wisdom, as Eric showed us in the Proverbs. Now, let me give you somebody else's summary of the context of the thing about muzzling the ox. And that's from Dr. Thistleton. He says this, The surrounding laws in Deuteronomy 24 and 25 almost all serve to promote dignity and justice for human beings. This comment is simply true to the text. Then he says, Compassionate grounds, the limits of pledges of death. Oh, excuse me, I, I jumped a line. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, concerns the implementation of divorce. Again, guarding people's well-being and their rights. Concerns exemption from military service on compassionate ground. Limits the pledges of debt. Treating persons as objects of converse. There's laws against that. And family, resident aliens, orphans, widows. 25, 1 through 3, regulates legal disputes, and restricts punishment to avoid humiliation. 
25, 5 through 10 concerns Levirate marriage. And then there's one verse about oxen. So that's the question. Why the verse about oxen and all of these other passages about preserving human rights and dignity? Here's what uh, Dr. Thistleton says about the one verse about <coughs> here. I'll read it. The unexpected insertion of one verse about threshing coheres most closely with the encouragement of human sensitivity and humane compassion toward the suffering or defenseless. The immediate preceding context concerns the plight of widows, orphans, and victims of punishment. So as the oxen pushes around the mill and treads out the grain, the oxen must not be muzzled on humane grounds that the oxen has to be fed as he works. And then when Paul says he's not concerned about oxen, it doesn't mean he has no concern about oxen, but the primary concern is about human beings, as you see throughout. Therefore, what this implies is that the minister who works hard, and we'll have an application about this, should be cared for. Paul has foregone that right because of reasons that I'll explain to you. I explained some of it last week. And those reasons had to do with the super apostles and their attack against Paul in his teaching, his preaching, and his life. So we'll go to another passage here, and I'll unpack that a little bit more. 1 Corinthians 9.10, where and now I've gone to the ESV because of a certain translation issue. I always do the Greek first before choosing English verses or translations. 1 Corinthians 9.10. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Certainly, as I have here in my notes, and it's on the slide, translates pantos. When I put a little underscore after the O, I do that when in transliteration to distinguish between omicron, which is a small O, and omega, which is a long O. So it would be like the difference between not and note. We just have one O, but they have Omicron and Omega. So when you see the underscore after it, it's Omega. Think of note, long O. Okay, so pontos, which is an adverb, and it's used eight times in the New Testament, all by Luke or Paul. Last week I talked about Luke and Paul working together in Acts, and Paul um, certainly has been influenced by Luke, as far as the development of a robust Greek vocabulary, I think that's not even unreasonable to think at all. Here, work is done with the expectation of benefit and return. That's true to life. When we do work, we expect benefit. I grew up on a farm. We worked very hard. 
and in uh, my years on the farm were in the 50s and 60s. And there was lots of manual labor, hard work, uh, knowing that a lot of bad things could happen where you didn't get the benefit, but most of the time you do. They had to do with what farms are like. And the, the benefit doesn't just show up. You got to work hard if it's going to be there. You got to plow, you got to plant, you got to deal with your weeds. You've got to feed to a livestock. You got to take care of the cows and milk the cows. We had those. We had to get the eggs from the chickens. We had those. You had to take care of the pigs. We had those. And my dad, in his wisdom, decided at some point he wanted to make money, so he got rid of everything but the hogs and the grain. Well, you know, we made money. Our eggs and our, our, never mind. The milk was like grade Z if they even had that. But at least we had milk for our cereal. So this is just true to life. Um, now, what about this, the oxen here? Why we emphasize that? Let me explain this. Some have accused Paul of using the allegorical method and then furthermore taking another step and saying, therefore, the apostles believed in allegory rather than the literal interpretation. And that Paul was no different than Philo and other allegorical people, which would, of course, gut the Bible of its meaning. And so in order to push back against the mystics and the liberals who want to endorse allegory rather than what the Bible actually means, a lot of work has been done about this, okay? It's very important. So Paul is not allegorizing. He's pointing out the value of whatever work is done would be also enjoyed by the worker. Um, Thistleton referenced other scholars, including Fee, in uh, this about, uh, excuse me, Deuteronomy 25.4, that's our verse, which is about the ox. It says this, quote, functions as an elegant, elegant metaphor for just the point that Paul wants to make. The ox being driven around and around on the threshing floor should not be cruelly restrained from eating the food that his own labor is making available. So, too, with apostles. Don't cruelly treat the ox. Don't cruelly treat the apostle the preacher, the teacher, and say, well, you've got to do it for free or we think you're up to something bad. So that's the point here. It's not endorsing the allegorical method. Fee says, Scripture ultimately exists for those upon whom the end of the ages has come, that there's not so much a denial of concern for animals as it is a recognition, says Fee, that even the law's uh, concern for oxen was a way of teaching Israel of God's mercy toward all. And because we stand at the end of the ages, he points out, toward which uh, and for which whom all former things were pointing, Paul argues, surely it says this for us, doesn't it? So I thank God that he's concerned for all. He's concerned for people who can't labor and thus create any benefit for widows, orphans, for the elderly, 
for whoever we care because God cares and for the worker who would be taken care of by the fruit of the effort of working. So we don't need to go to the allegorical method. So let's go to verse 11. Here's a statement of Paul's point. Verse 11. 1 Corinthians 9, 11, New American Standard. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Sold spiritual things is stated, as I say in my notes here, as a first-class conditional. What do we mean by that? A first-class conditional is assumed by the author to be true. If, as is the case, okay? If, as is the case. Paul had sown spiritual things. He brought the gospel, taught them the truth, taught them the things of God. And that was true. So it would, is it a, literally in the Greek, there's megas. I have that on my notes here. Megas. Mega. We know that word. So here, uh, one scholar would translate, is it a big deal? We we sold spiritual things. Is it a big deal? We reap what literally in the Greek says fleshly, but here it means material. Uh, And, of course, the implied answer, well, no, it's no big deal. Now, we're going to talk about something today. I'll do a lot of it on the next slide. I want to introduce the idea. Some have proposed, and I think this is true to what I've seen throughout my ministry, as far as just observing how religion operates, how Christendom operates, how institutional churches operate, how institutions operate. And let me get your mind going that direction, and then we'll unpack that. Some have believed, and I think it's correct, that there were patrons, and we know such things existed in the Roman Empire, in the Roman world, and that the patrons were wealthy and were used to getting their way by what we nowadays call influence peddling. In other words, I will support your ministry. I will be very generous, and I'll make things happen But the cost to you is going to be, I want this top, but not that. I want this, but not that. And therefore, create an undue influence on the ministry uh, because of having power and money. And that there, some have said, and I think there's good evidence for this, especially based on 2 Corinthians, that there were some who supported the super apostles and we're saying to Paul, nuts to you, you have bad motives. If you were a real apostle, some patron would be taking care of you. Now, I'll try to give some nuance to that as we go on. It's amazing how applicable this is. This blew me away. I, I admit, I spent hours and hours and hours on this. And uh, because it's intriguing, I think it's applicable to how we define the church. 
I think it explains a lot of things that have happened. So I have on this slide, the problem was likely the hidden agenda of becoming indebted to a wealthy patron. That's, and I think that's a very plausible possibility. And Paul said no to that. Better to make tents and not take any money. So that what I do preach is determined only by what God has revealed, not someone else's agenda about what they want preached. I'll get into more of that. Now we get to this slide, and it's pretty dense on my notes. I had to go to small prints. I know I have a lot here. Hang on. This is the key. 1 Corinthians 9.12. 1 Corinthians 9.12. If others share the right over you, do not we more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Now, there are some key words here in the Greek that have been discussed, and I've done a lot of work um, to unpack and look up the range of meaning and see what it likely means here. The verse is endure, endure. And it could be translated put up with. You may have that in whatever translation you're using. We put up with. We put up with all things. Whatever comes his way, however he's treated, however he's mocked, however he's disregarded as being not spiritual enough, something's wrong with Paul, we can tell. He's not as good as the other apostles. He endures it. Even if they don't like the fact he works, he does it anyhow. So we'll cause no hindrance, hindrance. The noun translated hindrance is used only here in the New Testament, nowhere else. Makes it a little more difficult. But the verb form of the word is used a couple of times, and it may be similar as some have pointed out to Isaiah 40, verse 3 and 4. I don't want to go there, but that's a famous passage which says, prepare the way of the Lord, make uneven ground level. Prepare the way of the Lord. And so it means to cut something so there's level and there's no hindrance. And so that's probably what this means. We don't want hindrance to the gospel. According to the Bible, the gospel is more important than everything else. The person of Christ, the work of Christ, redemption, atonement, forgiveness, eternal life, being saved out of this world, being transferred from darkness to light. That's everything. Personal agendas, vendettas, all of the things that clog up and harm and uh, cause needless intrigue in human relationships. Yes, they get into churches because they get in anywhere there's people. There's no doubt. It's always going to be there. But if the gospel is more important and the truth is more important and God will soften our hearts so that whatever happens, we don't want to harm another brother or sister in Christ, it's possible to mitigate the intrigue and politics and whatever that can be so easily uh, harmful 
to the body of Christ. And so I say here, the elitists clung to rights and harmfully so. What about patronage and bad influence? I'm going to discuss that rather uh, heavily here. It's very important. Let me quote from my own notes something I put in here. People with significant resources who come to Christ can and do provide means of the spread of the gospel. But it has to be for the whole body and also without partisan strings attached. It's not always bad. An example of godly of a godly instance is Lydia in Philippi. Acts 16, 14, and 15. There's nothing negative said about Lydia, who is obviously wealthy. She was seller of purple. I covered that in Acts. Thyatira, a wealthy and a lady who had leadership qualities. And she facilitated the gospel in Philippi. And there wasn't any suggestion that that was a bad thing. The issue isn't whether there are different people who facilitate the work of the ministry. The issue is whether there's an agenda that's not for the gospel and every member. There was no such agenda with Lydia, and that's why she's spoken of in a positive way. But not the case with the elitists in Corinth. They had plenty of agendas. It takes a lot of chapters of 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians to cover all the agendas. And that's the problem. Then I'll continue what I've said here. Paul's failure to accept these benefits from the church at Corinth, this is my statement, may have made the impression that he had no right to them. He corrects any such impression here and explains why. No hindrance to the gospel. No one can say he's in it for the money because he didn't get any. Now, there's reason for people to be suspicious, especially in 21st century America. Look at the scandals. Look at the multi-million dollar uh, enterprises that have been pulled off by false teachers under the name of the gospel. Mansions. And literally, extravagance, luxury, anything and everything. And it turns out that people are being taken for a ride. And so there's a skepticism. Makes people doubt the gospel. We don't want that. Dr. Thistleson says, Paul, unlike others, refuses a friendship or patronage which is offered by selected people of influence rather than as at Philippi, the church as a whole. Good point. Hence, these verses offer a double lesson for today's church. I totally agree with Dr. Thistleton. One, his pastors and leaders deserve material support. Number two, there is no place for that special friendship which predisposes pastors or leaders to favor the wishes or inclinations of some against those of others. I must tell you, in the 50 years I've been a Christian, I've seen that more than once. And 
in small settings, big settings, church settings, educational, institutional settings. This is what often, sadly, happens because of a personal agenda. One case, um, when I was a brand new Christian, there was a wonderful pastor who, faithful to the gospel, preached and taught and did anything and everything. But that particular church had a, a, a thing in their constitution bylaws that the pastor gets paid percentage of the giving from the members. Well, the most prominent member didn't like that particular pastor for what reason I can't figure out. So would not give one cent other than to missionaries so he wouldn't get paid because she didn't like him. That's the sort of thing that this is saying don't allow to happen. And he just cheerfully kept preaching and teaching and Sunday morning and Sunday night and going on the radio. And uh, I didn't know about that until after when some people from the church I met at Bible college told me what was going on. They didn't want him to get paid. You do my bidding or you get nothing. So he didn't do their bidding and he let the Lord take care of him. He was at our wedding, that brother. Um, Dr. Gardner says, however, it is at least possible that some wealthy members held power in the church through patronage, thus providing income for the leaders they preferred. Paul has made it clear that such patronage is unacceptable to him. 1 Corinthians 1, 12 through 14. He does not want this support on the grounds of status as a leader or on the grounds of patronage. But for the sake of the gospel and because the fruit of the gospel is already being reaped in Corinth. What about other aspects of Christendom? What about such things as boards of regents? Almost always powerful and wealthy businessmen associated with the denomination or the educational. And this could be in things that used to be Christian and no or not, like the millions upon millions of endowments in universities that now teach the opposite of what they were founded upon. What about someone so powerful and influential that they could actually say, I will support your seminary, but we have to deal with these pronouns. No more generic he shall be used at the seminary, even though the Bible uses it. You don't do it, I'm not funding it. That sort of thing happens. Still does. We want to promote a feminist agenda. You don't, I'm not going to support you. Does the pastor kowtow to the agenda or go like Paul and say, that's a hindrance to the gospel. I'll preach that whether anybody supports me or not. Does that make sense? This really opened up 1 Corinthians to me. And I thank God for the scholars who unpacked this. Here's my statement. Now that we have Christendom in the institutional church, the problem of inappropriate influence through some financial support of powerful people is epidemic. The bigger the institution, the bigger the problem. 
institutions need a lot of resources to maintain themselves and grow. People with power, friends in high places, and lots of money wield influence by getting on the Board of Regents, for example, of a Christian educational institution and demanding that certain beliefs are promoted and others scuttled or silenced. This is often how the gospel and clear Bible teaching turn into something else. In politics, this is called influence peddling. I got the money. I make the donations. Here's what's going to happen. Boy, if you read the newspapers or listen to the radio, isn't that the way it's been? And uh, boy, it's almost an analogy right here in America. Let all the criminals on the street or I won't fund your campaign. And so on. It's just sad. It's sad. Okay, I'm not shocked that the world's like that. It's fallen. But should the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he's the head, be that way? Of course not. We need to take care of one another and see the dignity and importance of every single member is guarded, and that so even if it doesn't appear to us that they don't have a lot to offer. We're not taking care of people because they have something to offer. Who has something to offer is the Lord Jesus Christ who has the offer of salvation, forgiveness, mercy, and the power of the Holy Spirit whom he sends to empower us. And even if someone served their whole life and eventually get so old they can do no more than utter prayers, that person is still part and important and significant part of the body of Christ because God hears those prayers. Never give up. Never feel like you're too old. And never feel like you're unimportant because if God added you, dear ones, to the body of Christ, that creates the significance not who you can influence in that sense. And dear ones, I'm, I'm heartbroken when I hear from people who cannot find a gospel fellowship in their city because the institutions have taken over everything. You have to support the institution whether you think it's biblical or not. Institutions take a lot to keep them going. They get big, then they have to be maintained. The noun, I mentioned the noun translated hindrance. Let's go to the last slide in this section. I told you I purposely have fluid application points knowing that we're going to focus on that influence issue, but we'll get to for sure a couple of them. 1 Corinthians 9, 13 through 14. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple. And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So we have two more uh, evidences and principles that would show the same example, that you take care of those who serve through the gospel. And one is the temple in the Old Testament and its ministers. 
and the second are the teachings of Jesus Christ. The temple law, I don't have time to go through that, but you can jot this down, Leviticus 6, 14 through 18. talks about the sons of Aaron and how they eat and how they're taken care of. Leviticus 6, 14 through 18. On the teachings of Jesus, I have them on the slide here, Matthew 10, 10, uh, about when they go out on a mission, don't take a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. You'll be supported by those you minister to. Luke 10, 7. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. That was Jesus stating twice the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, I think the other principle we learned from Paul also applies. The willingness of the preacher to preach cannot be dependent on whether somebody's paying them to do so. And if there's a reason why uh, someone called to teach and preach the word of God is not paid, whatever reason, whatever happens, the obligation to do the preaching and teaching still remains. And uh, we've tried to live by that because a lot of changing situations over the years, as things happen, you have to keep preaching and teaching whether there's somebody there to pay a salary or not. Let's go to implications and applications. We honor God when we honor those who faithfully preach the truth. Two, we must resist influence peddling since it always harms the gospel. It always harms the gospel. And by the way, that doesn't mean that every member of the body of Christ can't approach the elders with concerns about teaching and preaching. We believe in the authority of Scripture to preach of every believer. The point is that everyone has the Scriptures, and we can together look for what's the truth and what's the best reading. And it's good if the elders hardly know who gave what. That's not the point. Is it biblical or not? That is the point. And that could come from anyone who has a good reading of the Scripture. The first uh, scripture I'm going to use as an application, 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, that restates the same principle. 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, if we could go to the next slide. Uh, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. So here Paul recites two things that we've already seen back in First Corinthians. So honor here, time in the Greek, the word honor, time, which involves the amount by which something is valued or the respect or reverence that's accorded to whatever it may be. Now, when it involves money, it's called an honorarium. Have you heard that term? That's the, that comes from this word timi, honorarium, meaning the, the person who brought the message is reimbursed for the expense of getting there and teaching and preaching. So here, that's the meaning. It has a range of meaning, not to mention we are to honor God. 
In this case, Paul urges Timothy to show the value of hard work at preaching and teaching. We've talked about that in Sunday school. Giving value in the congregation to such ministry of the word shows agreement with what God values. Sadly, in many cases, what is valued and rewarded is far different from laboring at literally the Greek word and doctrine. Lagos, didaskalia, word and doctrine. Word, laboring at word and doctrine, according to Paul, by elders should be rewarded and valued. Now, that doesn't mean everybody gets a big salary or becomes wealthy off it because that's not the point. It's that that's what we value. That's what we take that's very serious. That must be done. And the wise congregation will not honor the preacher who does no labor in word and doctrine, but is very clever and funny and entertaining. In fact, I think Eric saw uh, the ad for looking for a preacher. They want somebody funny. How about young, handsome, funny, entertaining, and somebody we like to listen to? Does he labor in word of doctrine? Who cares? Now you've got a systemic problem. The entire congregation has gone off its foundation. Better to have someone, and we'll see, I won't get to it today. I can see that right now. But uh, they, they call Paul unimpressive. By modern standards of what they're looking for in a preacher, Paul would never get a hearing. He'd never be asked to be a guest speaker, never be hired to be the teacher or anything else. He doesn't add up to the standard they're looking for. But that's sad, isn't it? 1 Timothy 4, 6, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. That's what Paul said to Timothy. Oh, that there were congregations everywhere around the world where what's honored and loved and supported is hard work to teach sound doctrine. What an amazing thing that is for people. And frankly, most such congregations are small. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's the institutions that have to be big to be impressive. But the church isn't an institution. It's an organism, the body of Christ with every member attached to the head, the organic church. And the size isn't the issue. It's the integrity and the truth and the solidity of being on building on the rock, as Eric taught it when he went through Matthew chapter 7. I have a statement here. Sadly, sound doctrine is rarely valued in the institutions of Christendom. What is valued and rewarded is whatever contributes to the growth, wealth, and power of the institution whatever it might promote or believe. Institutions reward those who make them bigger and more powerful. 
organism, the body of Christ, nourishes every member, whatever they may seem like, because they're attached to the head. Jesus is the head. And I'm going to turn, let's go turn to the next slide. We don't have time to expound all of it, but I have here where I'm going to preach the gospel. I promise you the rest of these will go on the applications three weeks from now. Okay, because they apply to the same topic. We're still on it. But let me read it and then preach the gospel to you. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 3. Same issues going on, by the way, when you get to 2 Corinthians. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. This is called Paul's full, full speech. Do bear with me, he says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pur- pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And now, um, next week, and this will be the first slide of application, not next week, three weeks from now, Eric will be preaching next two weeks for Matthew, and I love how he's doing that. We'll get to this one. But the analogy here is the betrothal of a daughter by a father. And Paul's the one who brought the gospel there. And he's very concerned about them. This is an analogy or a metaphor that they're being seduced away from Christ and the gospel. Satan always launches a, a counterattack when people come to Christ. And his desire is to pull people away from the simplicity or singleness or purity of devotion. Uh, That means without a hidden agenda, the one thing we want is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Love, honor that, and believe in him. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. And... He existed as God and with God from all eternity. The very creator came into his own creation, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, shed his blood, died for sins once for all, raised from the dead as he predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, appeared to many witnesses, bodily ascended to heaven, and promised that he'll come again. He poured out the Holy Spirit, and announced, as Peter announced in Acts, this is the last days. We're still in it. When Jew and Gentile, the doors open to all who will believe the gospel. What does he expect of us? To repent and believe the gospel. Quit living for self, sin, and whatever we're living for. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Turn from all of that and turn to Christ for Redemption, forgiveness, and eternal life as a promise. Today, believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your kindness, and your mercy. And we do pray that you give us clean hearts so that we aren't motivated the way the world is and that we would remain uh, 
pure and fixed on you as the one who saved us as we look forward to that marriage supper of the Lamb. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.